0: Amen. Well, thank you for leading us in worship today, and I'm also grateful to hear these testimonies from our youth. Great job. Uh, We prayed for you. We're proud of y'all. Thank you for representing us well in West Texas, and um, we're grateful for you. Um, Well, you know that our theme for 2023 is why does it matter? And we're just spending this entire year together in that conversation, exploring different uh, facets of that question. And for the summer, we are having a conversation about eternity. Why does it matter? And when uh, next Sunday morning, with July commencing, I will be out of the pulpit for the next few weeks, as I usually am in July. And I'll be spending that time studying and praying and helping us prepare for next year. But over the course of the next few weeks on Sunday mornings, you'll hear a number of uh, preachers from our church. Kurt Grice will be preaching, uh, Gary Stidham will be preaching, and uh, uh, Connor Toriaba will be preaching, and uh, Katie Reed Hodges and Luke Stair. So you'll hear from each one of them. And then when we come back together in August, we'll shift gears and we'll take on a new topic and we'll talk about the Supernatural. And why does it matter? And we'll do an intensive study of John. And then in the fall, in September and October, we're going to ask the question, why does the church matter? And then in November, we'll explore religion. Why does religion matter? You know, I've mentioned to y'all before that one of the um, books that has been uh, published by Charles Taylor is entitled The Secular Age. And in that book, his philosopher, he talks about how in Western society, we have grown to be more secular, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're less religious per se. It's just a different type of religion, if you will. In fact, when you look at the greater world, you ask the question, why does religion matter? Religion is growing, not diminishing. In fact, now the largest nation in the world is India. It has eclipsed China. And India is the largest has the largest religious population on the planet in one nation. So we'll talk about religion and the whole concept of missions and why would we take the gospel to the world. And then in December, during the Advent season, we'll explore why does Christmas matter? What is the incarnation all about? So looking forward to all of that. But with that said, let's continue our conversation today about eternity. You know, I've mentioned to y'all, we want you to get these signs, these John 3.16 signs. If you haven't gotten one, I really want you to get one. They're available out in our Welcome Centers. And we want you to take photos of yourself with John 3.16, this placard. Well, uh, we have a few church members that have started sending those in. Let me just show you a few of them. Um, Here's uh, just a a group of folks, uh, Vicki and uh, on this horse somewhere, I'm not sure where. and then two couples from our church, obviously in Alabama, on vacation. You see the beautiful mountains behind them. And uh, so, um, and then this sweet little family. <clears throat> obviously, baseball and John 3:16 go together. We all know that. Um, and then Bud in front of a Sikh temple, um, sharing the message of the gospel. And... Um, then my brother Emerson and his wife Mary Emerson has the John 316 sign and many of y'all you've met Emerson you know if you don't want to get saved don't get anywhere near Emerson okay uh, because he will share the gospel with you well we want you to send your photos in and they're beginning to come in now you send them to fbc slash john 316 remember don't put the colon in there okay and uh, we'd love to get them we're going to continue to so Show them and enjoy them for the rest of the summer. And um, y'all know that each week we have a podcast, Tell Me More. And uh, Katie Reed Hodges, Luke Starr, and I uh, spend some time having a conversation in depth about what we've talked about on Sunday mornings. And um, if whoever you find your podcast, we'd love for you to join us. They'll continue on during July, July in my absence. But I'm grateful for that opportunity. So with that said, let me share this final message for me in this series and the text for us is John 3.16, and I've entitled it For, So, Loved, Whoever, Eternal Life. And those words, of course, come straight from John 3.16. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me, and here's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to share John 3.16 from three different translations, but we at our church, it's our custom to stand and honor the Lord Jesus when the gospel is read. I'll start with the NIV. And if you'll remain standing, we'll look at a couple of other translations of this text. It's so familiar to our ears. But here's the NIV's translation. And if you have a red letter copy of the New Testament, that typically the red letters scholars believe are the words of Jesus, you'll notice that when you get to verse 16, most contemporary scholars believe you get to verse 16. And this is now John's commentary on the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, okay? So John has written, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let me show you another translation. Y'all remember a few years ago we had Scott McKnight come, Scott's professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary, and he has published a new translation of the New Testament. It's called The Second Testament. I got a copy of it this week. Scott's written over 60 books, and uh just an incredible scholar, probably one of the leading American New Testament scholars alive today. And his translation, he is trying to capture the Koine Greek um, and allow you to hear how some of these words are actually pronounced in Greek. So when you read that testament, that's how he does it. So here's his translation of John three sixteen: For God loved the cosmos, and that's how that word spelled in Greek, in such a way that he gave his only son, So everyone trusting in him may not be destroyed, but as Scott puts it, have era life. Now that translation, era life, is a little interesting, but what Scott says is, it is the final era which lasts forever. And so when you're born again, you now have life in the final era, if that makes sense. And then you may be familiar with the Amplified Bible. The Amplified Bible tries to take the meaning underneath the words in the text and actually add them to the text, even if they're not there. So it amplifies the meaning, if that makes sense. So when you see words in brackets, that lets you know that word's not actually in the text, but the translators based upon other translations believe it's implied. So if you look at how it is translated, for God so greatly loved and dearly prized the world, that he even gave as one and only begotten Son, so that whoever believes and trusts in him as Savior shall not perish, but have eternal life. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> so, John three sixteen. I mean, my goodness, what, a, <laughs> uh, what an enduring, endearing verse of Scripture. Most of us memorized that when we were children. And it is a verse that even non-Christians are familiar with. And I believe one of the reasons for it is, is that it is so beautifully theological and profoundly true. So I want to just walk you through it this morning, understanding that it's very familiar to you. So let's begin. I would start with the profound love of God. John communicates the love of God in all of his writings. As a matter of fact, in 1 John 4, John will say twice, God is love. And here in this text, God is presented as a loving God, and John is about to explain our salvation in Christ, and he begins by expressing the love of God. Now, I would say to you, we've talked a little bit about this before, but I'll just remind you, when you look at religious texts, The major texts of all the world religions, the only religious text that presents God as a loving God is the Bible. There is no other religious text that portrays God as a loving God that you can know personally outside the Bible. And then that is the testimony of the Bible. What is the motivation behind God's saving act? Love. And that's exactly what John says. As he prepares to explain to us salvation in a succinct way, he says it begins with God's love and God loves profoundly and God loves deeply because God is love. At the very heart of who God is, is love. It's hard to comprehend. In fact, I would say it's difficult, actually impossible to measure the love of God. How how do you measure God's love? You know, we... We, we have that poem, How Do I Love Thee? Let me count the ways. Let me, let me measure, if you will. Well, I don't know that we can measure God's love. In the fall of 1937, there were two engineers who were students at the University of Toledo, Ohio, Ed Kiefer and John Hawley. They invented, in 1937, the Cupid-O-Scope. It was a an old radio cabinet, a motor spark coil, and an electric resistor. And here's how it would work. They conducted experiments on the campus, and they would tell couples, if you think she loves you, come and let us test how much she loves you. The Cupid-o-scope. So the couple would come in, the man and the woman, And they would hold electrodes on either end of this machine and move closer together. And as they moved more closely together, um, electricity would start to flow toward the girl. And depending upon how much of the electricity she could tolerate, that would then measure how much she loved you. (laughs) So there was a scale, and the scale went from no hope to call the preacher. Those were the two extremes, okay? So now later, that was actually modified by what was called the love tester that Nintendo actually produced. But it came from this particular um, invention. Now, I don't know if a woman's toleration for electric sparks can actually measure love. I'm not sure about that. And I certainly don't know how to measure God's love because it's so expansive. What I would say, though, is God's love is easily demonstrated because we see it. Let, let, let me just point out a couple of texts to you this morning. First of all, Romans 5. When you look at Romans, now, you know, Romans is um, it's a powerful letter from Paul. It's, um, it's a pastoral letter from Paul. It's not really systematic theology per se, but it's in this letter that Paul teaches some incredible theology. And in Romans 5, verse 6, listen to what Paul says. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, let let me just make sure you know what that means. You and me, we're the ungodly. Okay, that's who he died for. Without Jesus, we're all ungodly. So while we were powerless to do anything about our sin, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul says, here's the demonstration of the love of God. Christ died for us. First John chapter four, John who wrote, The Gospel of John, I believe he also wrote 1 John, he expounds on love even more fully in 1 John. In 1 John 4, verse 7, John writes this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. That this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, he's demonstrated his love. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought, also ought to love one another. Well, how do we measure God's love? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but we can see it. It's been demonstrated in his actions. God so loved. You know, Thursday night, uh, Cindy and I were having dinner with Jeff and Karen Williams, and Ada was with us. And we're finishing up the dinner, and Ada got up from the table where we were eating and came over to me, and she said, Poppy, I have a sermon. She said, I don't, I don't know how to explain to you, but I was, I was riding in the car, and God gave me a sermon, and you need to hear it. I said, really? She said, yes, you do. So y'all, we, we got home that night, and Ada set up a pulpit at our house, and she preached a sermon on what is love. We, we've got a photo of here she is preaching. <laughs> Eight years old. And she walks around in front of the pulpit, her makeshift pulpit, and says things like, What is love? How do you know what love is? Only God knows what love is. 29 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. So there you go. Um, But what's fascinating was, how do you think I felt to listen to my granddaughter preach a message on love? And then she said this, She said, Poppy, I don't get it. Some people don't like girl preachers. She said, if you love God, you ought to have more respect than that. Let God speak through whoever he wants to speak through. Okay. (laughs) So, all we said was amen to that. (laughs) And, uh, And I'm grateful to the Lord as an aside. She's growing up in a church where that's actually true. So, anyway, but God's love. Ada was right. How do we know about love? From God. And his love is profound. And then I want you to notice in this text, one of the reasons it's so endearing to us is the universal invitation. I hope you saw it. When I first came to pastor this church, I was meeting with Tilly Bergen at Mission Arlington. And Tilly and I didn't know each other very well at the time. And I asked Tilly a little bit about Mission Arlington. Here's what Tilly told me. She said, we don't have a strategy I said, okay. She said, we just hang out around John 3.16. I said, okay. And then she said this, you do know the most important word in John 3.16, right? And I thought, okay, is this a test? Will I survive this if I get this wrong (laughs) here? And of course, Tilly was quoting John 3.16 in the Old King James. And you know the most important word in John 3.16, whosoever. That's what Tilly said. N-I-B translates it, whoever. This is the universal invitation. It doesn't matter who you are. L- l- let me just remind you of what Paul says in Romans. Again, Romans is a, is a powerful book, y'all. It's not technically systematic theology, but Paul does codify our theology in his writings. Paul's letters are just that. They're, they're letters. They're letters either to pastors or to churches at specific times for specific reasons. However, there are times in Paul's writings where he helps us truly understand Christian theology. Romans is one of the examples of that. Here's what I love about Romans. There are a lot of things I love. But Romans 9 has the most explicit and strongest statement about predestination and election in the entire New Testament. And then follow Romans 9 with Romans 10, and Romans 10 has the strongest, most explicit statement in the New Testament on the free will of humanity. So you got two very complex doctrines, predestination and free will, and Paul has them side by side, one page to the next. It's not accidental. Paul is helping us understand the complexity of our theology that sometimes it's even beyond us. So you get to Romans 10. You think about the whoever. Look at Romans 10, verse 11. Let me just read it to you. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him for for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, whosoever. It doesn't matter who you are. That's the teaching of John three sixteen, Whoever believes, the text says. And John bears that out in this gospel. I mean, for example, in John 3, it's Nicodemus. Here's this ruler of the Pharisees, this chief leader, this, this religious teacher. Very next page in John 4, it's a Samaritan woman at a well who's been through five failed relationships for whatever reason. And now she's in another one, this dicey, Jesus knows that, and yet this message is for her. It's an invalid at the pool of Bethesda in John's gospel. It's a man who was born blind. It's, it's two sisters and a brother, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's Mary Magdalene. It's, it's a doubting Thomas in John's gospel. It's a St. It's Peter who has denied Jesus at a crucial point in history. It's Joseph of Arimathea. In other words, John's t- story documents, John three sixteen. it's whoever. It does not matter who you are. The people of God come from all walks of life, any walk of life, and whoever believes and calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now with that said, here's where it gets sticky. And that is what I would call the particular affirmation. Because I want you to notice what this text says because it's very precise. This text says, for God so loved the world. Yes, he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him. That's where it gets sticky. Theologians often refer to this as the theology of particularity. Sometimes it's called the scandal of particularity. The reason those words are used, scandal is actually a transliteration of a Greek word, scandalon, which means stumbling block. Particularity means it is this one particular truth. It is this one particular way. So in other words, this text is consistent with the rest of the New Testament that teaches a particular path is available for salvation and it's the only one. Is particular. It's a scandal. In other words, it's a stumbling block to some people because it, it's difficult to understand it. But the truth is that is what the Bible proclaims, that it is only through believing in him that you can find salvation. It rules out every other option. There are lots of options in our world today. There, are, there is a a smorgasbord of religious options. There are all kinds of opportunities. There are all kinds of paths that are laid out for people to follow to find some kind of connection with God, to find some kind of life. But the scripture, the New Testament, specifically restricts the pathway to God down to one. It's particular. John 1 presents Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John says. And then in verse 14, John says, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, lived among us, dwelt among us. And John says, and we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, the Son of God. And so Christianity is distinguished because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is our only hope, he's our only way. Jesus himself says it in this very book, in the Gospel of John. In John 14, verse six, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It is the particular path. Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. He is unique in all of history. No other religious figure compares to Jesus. Jesus was a prophet. There have been a lot of prophets, but he wasn't just a prophet. He was a priest. He wasn't just any priest, he's the great high priest. He is actually a king. He's not just any king, he's the king of all kings. He is the Son of God. And Jesus Christ lived a perfect life on this earth. He was in perfect harmony with his father. He completely did God's work. He tells us that in John's gospel. I see God at work. He joins God at work. He completely obeyed the will of God. He lived his entire life in perfect harmony, obeying the will of God perfectly. He bore the image of God perfectly. He radiated the glory of God and reflected the glory of God perfectly. He's full of grace. He's full of truth. He showed us and he taught us how to live. He is our Lord. And then the time came when the Lord decided it was time for him to offer up himself for us. And so we read the story in every one of the Gospels. Then finally the time came when Jesus was to be lifted up, just like in this story in in John 3, like the snake was lifted up in the serpent. The Son of Man was lifted up on a cross so that everyone could believe in him. And then God chose on that fateful Friday, just outside of Jerusalem, to take all of our sins, my sins, and your sins, and the sins of the entire world, and he placed them on Jesus. And Jesus received in his body the penalty of death that he did not deserve, and yet he chose to offer himself up willingly as a sacrifice for us, and he died on the cross For us, he was buried, and then he was gloriously resurrected from the dead on Easter Sunday and defeated death to never die again. He has ascended to the Father, and he's paved a path for us to live on this life and a path for us to eternity. Praise his name. Now, so because of that, he's the way, and he's the only way. It's particular, it rules out every other way. Now, sometimes people ask me, down there at First Baptist Arlington, why do y'all do so and so? Why why, why do y'all do this? Why do y'all do that? If you ever get asked the question, why our church does anything, I wanna give you the really simple answer. And it's profound, but simple. Here's why we do what we do. Because we are doing our best to follow the Jesus way and we're trying to get as many people as possible to do the same. That's it. That's it. Well, why do y'all do? Well, because see at First Baptist, we're doing our very best to follow the Jesus way and we're trying to get as many people as possible to do the same. That's at the heart of everything we do. We're glorifying God by following whose way? The Jesus way. We are Jesus way people. We believe Jesus shows us the way to heaven. We also believe he shows us the way to live in Arlington. And so we're followers of the Jesus way because it's the way. It's the right way. It's the particular way. And as far as we know, and according to the teaching of the scripture, it's the only way to heaven That's exactly what this text says, believing in him. Now, finally, the eternal ramification as Scott McKnight says, this, uh, this era life, this, this new era. In other words, you won't perish, the text says, but you'll have eternal life. You see, God has put eternity in our hearts. He's created us for eternity. He's given us the ability to have glimpses of eternity. Now, we live here in this temporal world, but we're already connected to eternity. When you become a follower of Jesus you join the kingdom of God that's already being established on this earth and i refer to that as inaugurated eschatology and we're supposed to pray to the lord your will be done where your will be done where on earth just like it's like it is in heaven because we're part of your kingdom now and so the kingdom of light now exists already it's not fully consummated i get that but look at my world Look how broken my world is. Look how my world's filled with lust and greed and hate and blame and shame and war and violence and abuse, yes. But it's also filled with a lot of good because there are Christians in this world and there are Christians who are pushing back the forces of darkness. And every time a Christian wins a victory that way, the kingdom of God is a little more established and God's light shines just a little bit more because we're already a part of it, we're already living it. Now, sometimes it's hard, I get it. This world brings all kinds of things to us. It's difficult to understand sometimes. We look at our lives and we wonder, why is this happening to me? Why are we in this situation? Does God not know who we are? Does he not know how much we love him? And why is this right here? Why have we been dealt this hand? Well, sometimes it feels that way in life. Corey Tinboom, one of my favorite Christians, years ago, she was asked this question. How, how do you deal with the challenges of your life? How do you deal with some of the frustration of your life? You know, she lived years in a concentration camp. Some of you may not, may not be familiar with her life um, when she was arrested during World War II. But anyway, she said this one time. She said, this is how I see it. She says, I look sometimes at my life. I don't understand why all this is happening to me. And I look heavenward. And she said, I ask God to give me a glimpse of my life sometimes. And when I do, sometimes I look at it and I just see all these threads hanging down that just don't seem to make sense to me. Different colors, no, no really sense of a pattern. It looks really ragged and. And, and jagged to me. She said, I don't understand it. She said, then occasionally, it doesn't happen all the time, but occasionally, every once in a while, she says, God will just lift me up and give me a glimpse of the other side of that rug. And I see this beautiful tapestry that God is weaving of my life without me being able to understand it from my vantage point. Then he drops me right back down on earth to live, to live my life. And I'm still looking at all those threads hanging down. But what I know is that God is at work and my life is actually a work of art in his hands And in eternity, I'll enjoy the beauty of it. What a testimony. You see, God gives us the gift of eternal life. It starts right now. Jesus said in John 10, this very gospel, I came so that you might live and live abundantly. Y'all know that I believe that. I've told y'all before, I want you to stay alive until you die. I want you to be fully alive when you die. That's how it works. We're supposed to live until the very end. But that life will last forever. I I was reading an article this week, an opinion piece on religious news service. It was written by Rabbi Jeffrey Salkin. And this rabbi, he says this. He says, here's the question I'm asked more than any other question as a Jewish rabbi. Here's the question, and it's the title of his article. Rabbi, what happens after I die? And I was fascinated to read his answer. As I began reading through his answer, one of the things he said was, well, you live after you die. And I was so heartened to hear that from that perspective at least, that thought, that idea. And yet here's what he said. He said, you live on through your children. You live on through your work. You live on through the good things that you did on earth. You live on through the things that you taught you live on through the stories you told and the stories that are taught about you. And with all due respect, when I read that, I thought, oh my goodness. What I have found in Jesus is so much better than that. I don't just live on through my children. I live. <laughs> I don't just live on through what I taught. I'm alive. I don't just live on through the stories that I've told y'all. I'm going to be living, telling more stories. You know why? Because I believe in Jesus, and I've given my life to Jesus, and I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin, and he was raised from the dead, and he's ascended to the Father, and he's provided a path for me, Dennis Wiles, to be forgiven, cleansed, restored, redeemed, and I've been given the precious gift of life that will last forever. Hallelujah. John 3, 16. What does Jesus, what does the Bible say? Believe. And if you believe, you will live, and you will live forever. May it be so. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we, we thank you, Lord. I want to thank you for the good news of this gospel. The good news that, Lord, that we all need, Lord, there are some today that are desperate for it. And so right now, Lord, within the sound of my voice, there may be those who need right now to receive this good news into their lives. And so, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in them and that reveal, you will reveal to them how to take these steps to invite Jesus into their lives, to express their belief, their faith in him, that he died on the cross for their sin, rose from the dead, and now lives forever. Lord, redeem those who are ready to be redeemed today. And Lord, may we be faithful to proclaim the truth and the beauty of John three sixteen in our everyday lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. amen.